The strong wind was howling and whistling. He was the first Chinese citizen to graduate from Yale University in the mid-19th century. I was born on the 17th of November. She had prominent features. Three of us were old enough to lend a helping hand. He navigated between two vastly different cultures and moved further to realize his dream and promote understanding between the people of China and the United States. Ye Mingxing was a native of Hanyang. I realized no danger. China is really awakening. Come and join us in discovering the incredible journey of Yong Wang in his autobiography, My Life in China and America. Check out the audible stories on radio.cgtn.com and all major podcast platforms. Just search for the podcast Books and Beyond and find My Life in China and America. Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. Hello, everybody. Welcome to a special edition of Roundtable. I'm He Yang, coming to you from Beijing. Today, we present the second installment of special program series "What's the Talk." "What's the Talk" is about bringing people together for a candid discussion. We seek to amplify the voice of the youth and provide a platform for different opinions as well as foster understanding. I spoke with four guests, all Gen Zers, on different continents via the internet. We discuss concerns and aspirations in the labor market and how working together can get us through the most prominent global challenges. Hello and welcome to our special program series, What's the Talk? I'm your host today, He Young, with CGTN Radio. Now, let's dig into today's theme of discussion: work and employment. Making a living, as simple and straightforward as it might sound, is top in mind for people. Landing the dream job doesn't always come easy. Young people are seeking employment in creative ways. Aside from looking to work for an employer, they could be booking up gigs as independent contractors online or starting their own business, among other choices. They have a lot of stories and thoughts to share in a post-pandemic setting. What does the future hold for youth employment in your country? For an in-depth discussion, let's meet the guests. Chen Xi, PhD candidate of Australian Studies Centre at East China Normal University. Shamim Zakaria, journalist and commentator. Rian van der Merwe, director for stakeholder relations at the South African BRICS Youth Association, and Mubarak Mugavo, journalist and multimedia producer in Uganda. A very warm welcome to you all. And now, well, here's the first question I want to ask that goes around to all of you. Tell us a little bit more about yourself, and you're all thriving in your respective fields. What brought you to make that career choice, ladies? First, let's start with Chen Xi. Hi, Thayo. Thanks. And I think this is a very important question for me because、uh, I'll soon have to make my decision in just one or two years. After graduation, so I make my own choice there. And actually, I think people need to make like various, well, different、uh, choices throughout their lives. So when I finished my undergraduate study in Wuhan, I had to decide whether I would like to stay in the city and continue to learn, or move to another place. And finally, I came here to Shanghai for graduate study, and I felt like I made the right decision. As my horizon has been widely broadened with new learned during my three-year master's study in East China Normal University, so after receiving my master's degree, I needed to make another new decision, and then I decided to work for it so as to know the social reality. I've quite benefited a lot from three years working experience and learned quite a lot as a professional. But in the end, I decided to pursue my academic dream again, so I chose to go back to university. So when I made my decision to become a PhD candidate, actually my future career plan becomes quite obvious, and I prefer to become a teacher or a researcher or both. So all these choices have shaped the line today, and during the process, I also grow from making these choices. Yes, and having so many exciting opportunities lying ahead, that must be a great position to be at. But also, not everything is all rainbows and unicorns. We all know that. So we'll get a little bit deeper into your story and your observation a bit later. 
And Shamim, welcome. Same question to you. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and how did you make that big decision to do what you're doing right now? Hey, hey Anna. It's lovely to be joining all the other guests and you. Uh, so, yeah, I have been a career journalist. And to be honest, even before I, I became a professional journalist, I somehow stepped into the media field. When I was 17 years old, since then, I started writing for some local newspapers in India, in my hometown. And for a 17-year-old lad seeing his own byline, uh, you know, in newspapers and all, that was kind of very motivating and inspirational. And that's when somehow I made up my mind that I will pursue journalism seriously. Though I didn't know much about journalism at that time, because in my family, there's no journalists. Like, either people are doctors or engineers, or people are in very technical careers, a uh, technical, you know, field. So, uh, so for me, I had to really, uh, you know, explore what options are there. So initially, I, I thought of uh, pursuing uh, my major in English literature because I was always interested in writing and English. Uh, but then somehow uh, my grades were not really enough to get into the college that I wanted to go. So I thought the next career, and that, that's where I would say that uh, it's important to have a plan B. So I thought the next career or the nearest career, which would give me uh, an opportunity to read or write is journalism, definitely. So then I... Uh, pursued my bachelor's in uh, journalism and communication from New Delhi. Uh, later on, I got a scholarship to study in the UK to pursue my postgraduate in international journalism. And that, of course, like uh, in an international journalism field that kind of uh, widened my purview and my horizon about the field. And I met new people and new professionals. And one, one thing led to another. And then now here I'm in China telling the China story to the world. Yes, we very much look forward to hearing your China story as well as through your eyes, what you see of China and the world and its uh, relation in all of that, as well as your home country, India. You know, you must have something very unique to share in this bigger picture of things. And Rian, uh, tell us your story and what's made your decision to decide, well, this is what I want to do. Thanks, Fayang. Um, so I think my journey started uh, when I started studying IR at university, international relations. I've always been interested in human development and what makes societies work and how we can improve them. And so that eventually led me to become involved in youth development organizations, affiliated to the UN and the African Union and so forth. But at the same time, I was also developing a passion for education and youth development. And so I've had these two parallel uh, career paths that have developed next to one another. And so that's today brought me to a place where I'm able to, if someone asks me, what is it that you do? I sometimes have to pause a bit and just think about all these different components of my, of my career. So I'm doing career consulting, I'm doing online development courses, um, but I'm also working with two development organizations, youth development organizations, one for BRICS and one for SADC. And so I think sometimes people think this is a very diverse set of, 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 of jobs and tasks that I'm engaged with. But in reality, what ties them together is my passion for human development and, and human progress. And so that's been a guiding feature throughout my master's, which I recently finished in international relations and what I'm doing right now. That's fantastic. It's good to have a guiding star as well as, you know, trying out all these different things. And there's one thing I admire just by listening to what you just said there. You're trying out so many different things. You're you're excelling in different things at the same time. It's like, wow, you've got so much on your plate. And we'd love to hear more about uh, your thoughts on all the interesting topics that we are going to talk about today. And last but not least, Mubarak. Hey, how are you doing over there? Tell us your story. And uh, I know you're a journalist and multimedia person right now. How did you get into the field? Well, thank you so much. My decision to get to journalism started at home. Uh, there was a conversation or a between my mother and my father. Uh, rather, my father was supporting uh, an opposition party and my mother was already supporting the government. In leadership and there was always a debate at all and another time I, I found myself in a very terrible environment where they were not actually agreeing politically at all so i wanted to have at least a neutral position in my family between my father and my mother my father wanted me to be a teacher and uh, he took me actually to a, an educational a, a teaching college I never wanted to be a teacher. I, I wanted always to be a journalist uh, since my primary school. So I was there for one year and I felt it wasn't really the best for me. So I came out, I agreed with my mother and we struck a bill. 
And I came out and I took me to journalism school where I started journalism or mass communication. I do not regret taking that decision because I always want to come out as a person who speaks the truth based on what exactly is the truth, regardless of which party or which position I hold on as an individual. That's wonderful. And we need people to have that neutral sense of mind and also that pursuit of the truth in journalism to see what is actually happening and deliver it to the people who are uh, taking in the news reports that you bring us. Thank you very much for that. And now I have to ask you this question to all four of you. Um, okay, so how do you see this? What is the common concerns that young people share in your home country when it comes to employment? And also, um, what about you? You know, when we talk about the deepest worries of uh, employment, what is it for you personally as well? So, uh, Chinsi, could you provide us with your answer? Well, the thing is, I think we don't really know because the uncertainties worry us the most. Although I, I, I once worried for three years, but today I'm still facing a quite highly competitive situation. This competition includes not only with men, but also with women and girls. Our society has come quite a long way in terms of gender equality, as well as, you know, breaking through the ceiling. But still, I feel as a young woman in the process of making career decisions, there are a lot of concerns. Yeah, young women of my age, we are facing like multiple uncertainties and worries with some of these like worries mutually contradictory that young female professionals, they have to sacrifice. So for an are employed and unmarried women just like me. I'm facing with quite a lot of uncertainties while the changing of more society also brings various challenges at the same time. Yes, that is definitely something I can feel, you know, very close to my heart as well as a fellow female um, professional. And um, I think in life it's about like how can you turn them into your strength in some shape or form, but we'll see if we can do that. And uh, let me go to Rayon. So what do you see as maybe some of the common concerns that youth in South Africa share when they're looking for a job? And if I may ask, what about you, sir? Yeah, so I think the first thing that comes to mind in general for South African young people is the fact that we have a very high unemployment rate. And so the availability of jobs in South Africa itself is a big challenge that faces young people, whether you're actually going to get a job. You have a situation where many of our, even our university graduates, even people with engineering degrees, with high-end degrees, are not finding jobs in our economy. And so they have to face the question of whether they're going to have to leave our economy or whether they're going to try and stick it out. Um, I think the second point, and this also applies very much to, to me personally as well, is um, what was mentioned by the previous speaker, is the idea of uh, instability. The idea we're not able to create a long-term plan necessarily because a lot of the job opportunities are short-term in nature. They're part of the gig economy or their contract work. And that prevents us from actually, you know, having a five to 10 year plan for our lives. I was reaching, I was reading an article just the other day about millennials who obviously are now in their thirties. So the generation is before us and how they've struggled to actually find stability in their thirties and forties because they couldn't buy a house. They couldn't establish a family and many of them feel very unfulfilled. And so as someone in my 20s, the Gen Z, I was looking at that and thinking to myself, will we end up in the same place when we are 30 and 40? And I think the last one that, I, that comes to mind is when we do get a job in a specific sector, we often find that the training and education we've received have not really prepared us for what that job requires. And so I think there's a big thing, even for those of us who are qualified, who are going through education and training, uh, the question that get, weighs heavily on us is, if I get this job, am I actually going to be able to do what it requires successfully? And so those are the three things that, that come to mind. Indeed. These are some of the things that um, uh, different economies in the world might be feeling more or less, but that uncertainty is something that definitely is being discussed a lot. And um, by the sound of it, being a millennial, a Gen Z or whatnot, you know, we're all kind of all in this together. It's not easy for anybody, huh? Mubarak, 
Uh, tell us about what it is like in Uganda. What are young people over there thinking about looking for jobs? What are possibly the obstacles that they're facing? And what about for you? What keeps you up at night when you think about your own job? Just like Leon has said, uh, the conversation seems to be the same, uh, especially in tertiary institutions where uh, these young people are about to be chimed out, are about to graduate. That's the conversation that normally happens, fostering around the possibility of getting a job is the first uh, conversation that takes place, for example, in, you know, these young people. And also the conversation has also been lifted to another bay where they are now talking about after getting the job, then what next? Are you able to protect that job for quite a long time? And, and how sustainable is that job after getting it? But the most important thing uh, that most of, you know, the concern that most of the young people want is that, well, there is this whole conversation about getting a job, but also what type of job these young people want? Because that has always still been uh, uh, a very, very critical issue in the discussions around young people. First of all, the possibility is, is very, the chances are slim because, for example, in Uganda, in case of Uganda, universities churn out about 40,000 graduates every year. Less than 10,000 are able to get a job. And even when you break down to that 10,000, realize that the 10,000 who have been able to get a job, not even a half of them get the jobs that they need. So they get to the job simply because this is what is abided. Yes, we'll hear more from Mubarak in a second. And Shamim, tell us what's your observation of the labor market uh, in the sense of, you know, when young people are looking for jobs and uh, their worries there. Well, I'll definitely agree with my fellow pa panelists because as a developing nation, India also, uh, or rather uh, the millennials in India, the young job seekers also share similar worries. To get that, to take that first step is always difficult. So, and with the pandemic and, you know, uh, unemployment rate rising in India, it has only, only gotten difficult. And second, definitely is the job security because young people often worry about job security as they are unsure about the stability of the jobs in the long run. You know, like many companies often resort to like temporary hiring or even contractual employment. And this leads to instability in jobs. And this, I think, internally, again, may creeps in a feeling of anxiousness among 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 young people for not having a permanent job or you know having to struggle for their future plans and and second of all i have also seen among young people that nowadays mental health is also an important thing and young people really really want to talk about it it's no longer considered a taboo so when they are uh, seeking job options they also want to have uh, want to make sure that the job provides them ample opportunity to uh, or, or or rather save mental health and uh, support so I think when those things are not there, that definitely they would not want to take that job, and that further shrinks the, their uh, their uh, uh, what uh, the, their option. And I think finally, I would say definitely work-life balance, because we have seen you know the rise of the rise of a demanding work culture. Like young people may feel worried about you know about the work-life balance and personal life, you know, balancing both out. So they may struggle to work long hours, especially young professionals. And working for someone or starting your own shop. Um, people could be thinking about employment or entrepreneurship. What would you choose? And what are the reasons that propel you to making that decision? Chinsi, what do you think? Well, to some extent, I actually think there's a very obvious difference between working for others or starting your own on business because both of these are about the groups of people and the kind of the only difference lies only in the mode of the work. When we speak of the uh, entrepreneurship, it means building out from uh, nothing or starting from scratch, but working for someone also needs like innovation as well as reform. Sometimes, you know, there might be certain limitations for uh, entrepreneurs to, to make decisions as we know they cannot always do all they want to do. But 
sticks like uh, self-responsibility, creativity, or to make planning. All these kind of features are needed, not only in a midst of the entrepreneur's work, but also for teachers in their teaching work, for example, when they have to instruct their students. They need some kind of uh, innovative teaching method in order to attract their students. So, you know, to some extent, I think there is no very obvious difference between these kind of two ways of and now let me go to Rion. Uh, what do you think about uh, entrepreneurship versus employment? Um, is, is it a vast difference of arrangement or do you might have something similar of an idea to what Chelsea just said there? What do you think? So I think just looking at my own life and also just looking at where our generation currently is, I would say that putting the two different options of either working or starting something that you own and that you are driving yourself is maybe a bit of a false dichotomy because this economy might actually require my generation to do both of those things at the same time. And you're actually seeing the idea of the side hustle becoming very um, popular among people in my generation where you have, you know, you have your stable job that you do on a day-to-day -day basis, but you're also developing something on the side. And I think that sense of diversity, both in the type of work that you do and also in your income streams is one way that our generation has attempted to provide some security for ourselves. Because, for example, Gen Zs in general are very geared towards meaningful work. We don't want our work just to be, you know, something general, something very, you know, redundant. We want it to mean something for society. We want to contribute. But not all jobs are going to, you know, be able to provide that. So in many cases... And even in my own case, what young people would do is they would have their main job, their main employment, but they'll create something meaningful for themselves on the side, whether it be in the form of a business, an organization, an MPO, and that will also provide them with some form of income. And I think in our current economy, which is unstable uh, globally, but also in South Africa, particularly because of COVID, because of everything that's going on internationally, having those multiple forms of income also provides us with some security because if you are, for example, in the education sector and something prevents the education sector from, you know, growing or there's some kind of shock or the tourism sector in South Africa, those working in the tourism sector suffered a lot during COVID um, because it essentially just closed down, then you always have something to fall back on. And that's very important because that can be the make or break between a family having food and not having food. Um, and so that's personally a philosophy that I've embodied in my own career. And I think a lot more South Africans and youth in the global South are also embodying that. There are many challenges to that lifestyle. There are many things that prevent young people from fully embracing that. Um, but we are seeing, you know, policy changes, for example, the four day work week, more flexible hours, working remotely. All of these things are allowing young people to think more diversely about how they bring together working full time, but also creating something on the side. A lot of us around the world have gone through this sometimes painful process of recalibrating and re-evaluating what we want for life when it comes to work and private life. So have you guys sort of come up with a new version of work-life balance after the pandemic? Rian, what do you think? A lot of my working career so far has been um, remote. I've worked from home, as you mentioned earlier, that the internet has played a very big role in changing the way that we think about work. Before the pandemic, it would have been unthinkable for people to spend the majority of their time working at home. Um, but now it's become commonplace. We all do video calls. We do, we've realized we can do a lot of uh, what we need to do. We don't need to be at the office. And I think that's become increasingly challenging because your living space also becomes your working space. You might, you know, get up in the morning, go to your computer, sit down, and then at five o'clock you close your computer and you're back in your kitchen making dinner. There's no, those rituals that used to structure people's lives, like getting ready in the morning, commuting, you move into your workspace, your mind is now in a warm-up mode, and then you commute back home and you, you go back into to, to living mode, into your personal um, you know, your personal space, that line has been very blurred. And I think that's going to become an increasing challenge for uh, young people today, just in terms of how we structure our lives. For example, if you're, if you're single and you don't have someone living with you yet, that's an easy life to do. You know, you can just quickly move between 
what the task you need to do. But if, for example, you're establishing a family or you have other people in your working space or, or living space, then it becomes a bit of a challenge. And especially mental health as well, trying to make that psychological split between saying, you know, at five o'clock, I'm switching off, even though I'm still in the space where I usually, you know, answer my emails, answer calls. I'm not going to do that anymore. So it requires a bit more discipline um, than your traditional working environment. Yes, indeed. And you bring up that interesting development in work that is now, well, some people have been so used to working from afar, but now maybe your employer wants you back in the office. And that's going to be a discussion to be had. Some people, if they're in that comfortable position in saying no, if they want to, then they can make the choice. But some people feel they're compelled to agree with what the employer says. So um, in today's world, we're also seeing that in different jobs, walks of life and um, work opportunities, um, sometimes you are um, presented with the flexible or hybrid work hours and sometimes maybe not. And when you look at overall, like uh, in places such as in Asia and sometimes in Europe as well, apparently people are coming back to the offices. But in America, for example, apparently a lot of people are still sticking with the, oh, we're staying from afar or we're only coming in on Wednesdays or whatnot, that kind of thing. So, Chinsi, what do you think about this of um, the work-life uh, balance after the pandemic and has the pandemic changed your perception towards maybe how you want to arrange your uh, work in the future? Yeah, um, I, I think everyone had a I like that time during the pandemic, but we have also found that there are better ways to solve the problem. For example, we now have uh, online conference to have. We now have online conference to to have the real, a uh, real time discussion from different locations, just like this one. So we have actually reduced the distance to zero. It was indeed difficult during the pandemic for us to carry out the kind of like the field research or field trip at both home and abroad. But as a matter of fact, for general development of human society has been a progress of gradually discovering problems and process of development and then trying to solve the problem and then finally achieving progress. So our SS has discovered the tools to be used in the face of, you know, uh, the, the, the wild animals. Well, the Asians thought of using you know, the wheels in the face of the long distance transportation. So today, of course, we can think of, uh, we can think of a better way. And now we are actually in the post pandemic era. We can continue to use the kind of the application as well as software that we have uh, discovered as well as developed during the pandemic, but also look beyond the pandemic. For example, China is now straying out of the impact of the pandemic. From last year's 20th National Congress to the current National People's Congress, as well as the Chinese People's Political Conference, we are seeing the kind of the blueprint of Chinese style modernization is gradually unfolding. So from this perspective, I am firmly believed that we, we can have a quite brighter future. Rian, you've mentioned earlier in the discussion that um, you've seen some unemployment uh, numbers rise in South Africa during the pandemic. And what about in this post-pandemic world? Do you uh, see some changes to what the labor market has uh, appeared to be now, as well as um, with the world opening up and then in China, well, for Chinese nationals, you know, we've heard that uh, more countries have cleared the barrier of giving visas and, and uh, also international travels resuming and all that good stuff. So what do you see as possible international opportunities that lie ahead? So I think, as I mentioned before, um, the pandemic collapsed many of the key sectors in South Africa, such as, for example, tourism. I myself am based in Cape Town at the moment, which relies heavily on tourism. Um, and in the post-pandemic era, that sort of sector has now become, you know, activated again. We see a lot of tourists. This was the first year that we saw a mass influx of tourism into Cape Town. Uh, and that's really helped to open new job opportunities in that sector. We are facing a few other challenges in South Africa, which are not related to the pandemic, um, energy crisis, instability, and so forth. But in terms of the effects of the pandemic, I think we are slowly recovering from that. There are many opportunities that South Africans 
especially those in your sort of middle income and upwards uh, bracket, take up a take hold of in the international stage, such as, for example, teaching English in Asia, preparing in Europe, uh, going to work on farms in America. And I think those opportunities are really going to uh, increase and help South African youth think more broadly about their international opportunities. However, that also leads to the the unfortunate situation that our own economy does not benefit from these young people because they are leaving our economy. And so this poses a challenge to the South African society to actually sit and think, how do we make sure that these young people come back to our society and there are opportunities here for them as well so that their their talent is not lost. And again, many African societies specifically are, are very stratified. And so you'll have one middle class and upwards uh, block of youth who can access certain opportunities, whether it be university or international opportunities. But then the vast majority of youth in South Africa are still very much in a rural or peri-rural uh, context. And so they don't necessarily have opportunities to to the city. They don't have access to the city. And so that really affects their ability to build long-term careers. The majority of young people in South Africa that are my age, for example, still rely on very on the primary sector in the sense that they rely on either they work on farms and agriculture, they work in basic manufacturing, they work uh, as domestic workers. And so those types of, of jobs don't really provide any kind of long-term prospect for generating, you know, the kind of wealth that young people, particularly in developing countries like South Africa, require to make sure our society grows. And so we are dealing with many old issues because these issues existed even before the pandemic. And the pandemic sort of took away some of our, our structures that we'd spent some time building to give people support. And now in many ways, we're having to start over or in some ways we're actually in a worse off position. And so as young people, we really need to challenge our government, the private sector to think differently about how they approach what is essentially an unemployment crisis uh, in South Africa. At this point, it's, it's around 30%. So that's one third of our population that cannot find work that wants to work. And that really poses a, a crisis because young people that cannot work, that cannot create opportunities for themselves, are more susceptible to things like crime, like drugs, uh, like other antisocial behavior. And so that's really a crisis for us at this moment. Yes, and that's something um, I think with more studying and research and, um, you know, more hands-on to address the issue of an approach is probably needed. And it's not just the government, but also, you know, I think I agree with you that calling uh, for the effort from the private sector as well to get involved in solving some of these big issues that a society is going through. And also uh, during the pandemic, all national governments came up with their own strategies in dealing with the pandemic. And in China, we saw this dynamic zero strategy of COVID. And Chenzi, let's go to you for this question. Um, what do you see as the effect of this COVID strategy uh, reflected in the labor market? Some people are saying that, oh, it helped to stabilize the economy. Other people have different ideas. What do you think? Well, in recent years, especially like during the pandemic, during the past three years, young generation does face a quite severe and like employment situation. So the government, as well as the related institutions, are also continuously introducing the stimulus plans to different employees and giving correspondingly encouraging policies. And one of the most critical thing, I, I think that the government must focus on what the social reality or what the society really wants. Otherwise, efforts could be wasteful. So some kind of the policy packages seems to be good, but the actual effect tells quite a different story. And this is not the situation only in China, but in other countries, just like Australia, as well as the United Kingdom, similar situation could be identified. So it's still very necessary for relevant organizations to, to look at the changing world in a quite rational way and continue to carry out, for example, the market research to, to identify the real needs. So currently, uh, we are kind of like go back to the normal situation as we have more opportunities uh, going abroad and to do the field trip as well as to the, the field research. Globalization is still the mainstream of the development of both economy, politics, as well as the social culture. Therefore, for both business enterprises, as well as universities, cross-border opportunities are very important. So um, 
I think from my uh, own perspective, in the second half of this year, I'll be able to travel to Australia to conduct the research work. And my research topic is about the Antarctic study. You know, this kind of a research topic allows me to, to participate widely in international conferences, as well as seminars, both at home, as well as abroad. And this kind of the white eyes in there also bring me a lot of fascination. I wish one day I could have the kind of the chance, you know, to come to see you with my own eyes if you're this amazing land. Yes. Uh, Shamim, I'll present the same question to you. What are your thoughts on uh, the dynamic zero COVID strategies effect on the uh, labor market here in China and possibly, you know, the effects of it around the world, considering that we're all connected in this world economy in some shape or form? Well, I would say that, uh, see, we have to all agree that this was a pandemic unseen in a century. So every country, as you rightly said, that came up with their own strategies to, you know, uh, to fight this pandemic. And similarly, what China did were thought was best suiting its domestic conditions and definitely it had its result. It saved millions of lives and, and it kind of uh, helped to stabilize the country. But now dynamic zero COVID policy is nearer to over and now almost the world puts the pandemic behind it and I and you can see like once the China one China reopened in January there was already the there was the economy already rebooted and I think this year as well we can see from the statements from various uh, Chinese leadership that uh, the focus will be rebooting the economy and we have already seen that the cross-border opportunities are likely to increase now at the China's opening and the reopening will of international travel, because now that China has started reissuing uh, tourist visas and all other normal visas, that it led to a surge in demand for tourism and travel and travel and related businesses as well. I think one cross-border opportunity that I, I personally believe lies in the lies in the growth of e-commerce, as like more consumers have become accustomed to shopping online during the pandemic, and this is a trend that is definitely continuing and will will lead to increase in demand for cross-border and e-commerce logistics. So another, uh, when I said it in one of the previous questions as well, that another opportunity lies in definitely the rise of remote work, like which has become more prevalent during the pandemic. Like uh, during the pandemic, more companies, uh, you know, they were preferring remote work. So as a result, now companies are able to recruit talent from around the world without uh, having the need to physically relocate them. So I think that will also help in the cross-border exchanges. So, uh, so this is just the beginning of the year, we, and we have already seen the results of reopening. The economy is in, in no, uh, on an upward trend now, so we can just keep our fingers crossed and see that how the uh, next few months pan out. And and obviously, definitely, China as the second largest economy, whatever goes around in China, this will definitely have a large scale impact on the rest of the world. Yes, indeed. And we're all keeping our fingers crossed to see what happens this year. And uh, so far, it seems pretty hopeful in the sense that so many sectors are opening up. And it, at least here in China, we're seeing that, well, this is also happening elsewhere in the world, at least, you know, in the hospitality industry, like hotel, uh, tourism, restaurants or whatnot. You're seeing that there are uh, a lot of hiring that's happening and a lot of young people work in these kind of industries as well, which is definitely good news for people who are looking for employment. And this one goes to Mubarak. What kind of government policies would you like to see to create more jobs, opportunities for young people? And also, um, we can probably throw in the private sector as well and just to see, you know, how to uh, present more opportunities for young people because look at us, we are ready to grab them when we see the opportunity. The biggest policy that has now actually been put out by government. Uh, it's called um, the parish development model. It's uh, based on seven pillars and most of it, uh, of the biggest principle in Uganda is that 30% must go to the youth. Uh, the family that goes to in that program, 30% of whatever that is supposed to be done in that parish development model must go to the youth, to the young people. And what does this program about? It's mostly address the biggest critical challenge of the young people in Uganda, and that is uh, access to financial status, access to more scale loans, access to to capital. Now, this program that the government of Uganda came up with 
um, is to ensure that these young people who lost their uh, capital because most of them were actually getting the money they were using to work to be able to survive during the pandemic. What this program is now doing right now is that they are giving them money, cash, to go and be able to uh, to be able to start afresh with the businesses. And that alone actually helps them out. This question goes to Rion. What government policies would you like to see that can help young people in creating more jobs? And also, do you think the private sector can do more in that sense too? Yeah, so I think there are two things I'd like to highlight here. The first is that obviously the growth of the economy and the growth of, of job opportunities can't be split from from each other. If the economy is not growing, then job opportunities will not grow. And I think it's really important that all stakeholders, but particularly government playing a leading role, considers the comparative advantage of the of our specific society. So what comes to mind is if you look at the, the, the sector that I'm working in, ed tech, uh, you know, developing online courses, that kind of, of sector. Um, South Africa has, in some sense, a comparative advantage in that. For example, if European and American companies want to develop courses, they want ed tech talent, they can either hire from their own pool of talent or they can come to South Africa and hire here. Again, the remote working becomes very important because you can do a lot of the tasks that are required in the ed tech sector remotely. And South Africa has a comparative advantage in that in the sense of our, our labor is essentially cheaper. And as we've seen with the development model that China has followed, that India has followed, that many rising uh, you know, economies in the global south have followed, really leveraging, you know, the fact that you have a comparative advantage in cheap labor in certain sectors is really important for your development. And so what I would like to see government is identify those strategic areas in in modern technology, for example, whether it be software development, whether it be ed tech, and actually create opportunities for young people to enter those sectors and actually leverage the comparative advantage that South Africa has in those sectors so that it's more attractive. This, of course, includes making sure that people have access to the kind of training and the kind of education that allows them to access those certain sectors. Again, looking at the ed tech, for example, uh, my job is as one of my roles is as a learning designer. So I design online courses. But we now, for example, have AI technology that within the next two or three years, you can feed, you know, a bunch of source data into it, websites, articles, videos. And the, the AI can actually go and analyze all of that information and produce a curated, uh, you know, design course, online course based on that content. So that immediately removes my role as a learning designer. I can, what takes me a week to do, an AI can now do in, 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 in a day. And so ensuring that as, for example, an, a learning designer, I have the education and the training to actually then say, okay, let me absorb this this new AI technology into my skill set. So even though I'm not doing what I was doing before, I am now more resilient to resist the disruption that AI will bring. And so that's the first one. The second one is I think there's a real need for us to recognize, especially in the South African context, the value of entrepreneurship and the role that it should play, not just, you know, as a tick box exercise, but as a driver of the economy, because the economy will be driven by young people actually creating new things. It will not be driven by, um, you know, just redistributing the resources that already exist because there aren't enough anyway. And so we need to create new resources, new businesses, new supply chains. And this will only happen if young people are actually empowered to play that entrepreneurship role. And as Mubarak has also mentioned in our context as well, it is extremely difficult to start a business. There are many, there's lots of red tape, there's lots of paperwork, there's very little capital going around. But I think to add to his what he what he said about entrepreneurship and 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 how you can support entrepreneurs, all of that applies to the South African context as well. But what I think we need most of all as well is ecosystems. Entrepreneurs need to develop within an ecosystem, and that ecosystem needs to include you know government. It needs to include private sector. It needs to include civil society. And within that ecosystem, the young entrepreneurs supposed to be able to enter it to gain access to capital, to gain access to mentorship, to gain access to uh, ongoing support and training, and to gain access to networks as well, because I think there's there's very much in a, a proper e entrepreneurship ecosystem, there's this idea of network. You know, if a new innovation comes in, you hear from it from that guy, you have connections with that one. If you need a supply chain something, if you need a partnership, the networks is really what makes a business uh, flourish or fall. And in our case, many young entrepreneurs are starting businesses 
even if they get the funding, even if they get, you know, the idea off the ground, they're still working in isolation and they have to fight for every single step that they go, whether they're fighting against government or against corporates who don't want them to enter the sector. And for example, some of the organizations that I work with, like the South African Bricks Youth Association, is trying to create some of those networks for young entrepreneurs to actually enter and then utilize the unique opportunities that, for example, the BRICS as an international platform offers to South African young entrepreneurs to access the Chinese market, the Indian market, and so forth. And so those kind of initiatives need to be supported by government. They need to involve the private sector. It needs to be a multi-stakeholder approach to create these these ecosystems where, where young people can flourish in what they're doing. Some very good ideas right there. And without making this sound too much like a job interview, within the next five years, where do you see yourself? Shabim, what do you think? Uh, well, to be honest, I never think like in terms of my work life or planning five years because I think that's really long time, long term. But I like to, I prefer always to keep short term plannings. So yeah, definitely looking into the future, I see myself in a position uh, where I would like continue to grow and develop my skills. And most importantly, I feel like from the conversation, I could also gather that it is very important that we expand our skills, set of skills and expand our knowledge. Because if we are trained in only one certain area, it's always important to have a niche area. At the same time, we need to expand uh, our set of skills as well. Because it is a highly competitive world and with the advent of AI and other technologies, uh, yeah, our jobs might be at stake if we are not expanding the horizon of, of, of our knowledge. Like, for instance, I would give you a personal example very shortly that I started as a journalist. I was like a purely print journalist. But then over time, I realized that if I only stick to writing, it will not work. My job will be at some time, sometime made redundant. So I have to take up or learn other skills like editing, uh, video editing, poll editing, anchoring and all sort of things. And also, it is very important. And and for me, definitely, work will definitely, definitely play a very big role because in India, we have a saying that work is worship. So we definitely have to uh, keep a balance of our personal and professional life and grow professionally. And that's what, as young people, we can strive to do. Yes. Okay. And Chinsi, what about you? In five years' time, where do you see yourself? Well, five years would not be a very long time, but still it was quite hard to imagine five years ago who I might took being in five years' time. Also, there were so many things happened you know, uh, during the past five years. So uh, five years later, I, I think I will have my PhD degree and will be working at an university. And hopefully my, my home university is the China Norm University. I should conduct uh, teaching as well as researching work, which I've been uh, dreaming for for quite a long time. And for work, I, I think work will definitely play a very important part in my life for the sake of um, you know, substance, uh, substance. But more importantly, we don't really need to work, but work to leave. Life is kind of felt like um, shaving and, and reshaping us. So in five, five years of time, I will become a better me in a better society and a better world. But at the same time, I think working together will play a very important part, just like the Belt and Road Initiative, which provide a very perfect case of showing the importance of um, how to work together. Because the BRI connects the countries in you know all continents, including Asia, Europe, Africa, as well as the South Pacific. So countries have diverse economic structures with different resources. They could work together and achieve effective cooperation with talents from different social as well as cultural backgrounds. They get together to solve the problems that we are all facing today. So today I feel very privileged to attend this talk, and I also know that uh, our voices will be heard by the whole world. So finally, I just like to say, just as Aristotle once said a wise man strives to bring his own strength and the strength of others into the full play and their unity is bound to achieve the best result that is great and rion what do you have to say just looking ahead into five years time so i think the world is going to continue to be an uncertain place given everything that's going on for at least the next few years so i think in situations like that a long-term strategy is sometimes having a series of short-term strategies. So I very much agree that five years is a long time to think. But at the same time, I do think that to live meaningful and purposeful lives, we have to be guided by some kind of vision so that you know that your next step is either in alignment with that vision or not. And so for me, as I said in the beginning, that's very much contributing to spaces that enhance human development, human flourishing. And so whether that be in education as I am now or youth development, I think I don't really define my career in terms of roles and titles, 
because I think in the end, it's the person that you become that is actually the person, uh, that is actually the purpose of a career. Um, I once heard someone say that a career or your job is a journey of self-discovery. And so I'm very open to discovering, you know, who I can become. But in the end, I'm guided by the vision of being useful to this broader purpose of, of contributing to human flourishing. And so that's something I hope will guide me for the next five years. Yes. Mubarak, what do you envisage for yourself in the next five years? I'm looking at going back to do my PhD. I think I would be done by that time. And um, I'm also looking at intensifying my engagement research because having worked in the musical for a few years of Uganda and within our region, East Africa, I find the knowledge gap, especially on uh, the, 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 the global affairs, the international affairs, the way they are involved. I have quite experienced first-hand spear campaign against uh, the Eastern powers, Russia, China, Iran, asked Canada, all that. And I think I need to intensify research, uh, continue publishing uh, materials that will enable uh, the young people, especially to understand the motives of the people behind the smear campaign. And that will certainly uh, can as well be identified all four identified within two areas. One, we are uh, also thinking of actually getting into think tank and also trying to create a research-based organization here in East Africa. But also if it doesn't really work out well, there is no harm for me to try out a short in politics and get parallel uh, to see how maybe these voices are created so that we can create voices that can as well help and create a very good environment for young that I'd love to like reach out in five years Yes, well, I, I hope these uh, big dreams do come true. And uh, either way, they are really great um, launch pads for you and for you to pursue your dreams. And uh, maybe we'll get to talk again when that time comes and check with everyone how everyone is doing. And uh, and when these days you see, well, peace and prosperity, they kind of come hand in hand. And with national efforts, individual endeavors, as well as these personal exchanges and having a platform to do so, it is, you know, one way to propel to where we want to get at. And I think that is a world where there's more understanding, there is more uh, communication, and we can come up with global solutions when there are some of these big challenges that uh, present itself in front of us. Thank you very much for that fruitful discussion. I want to say thank you to my lovely guest, Chen Shi, PhD candidate of Australian Studies Center at East China Normal University, Shamim Zakaria, journalist and commentator, Rian Von Demerwe, Director for Stakeholder Relations at the South African BRICS Youth Association, and Mubarak Mugavo, journalist and multimedia producer in Uganda. I'm He Yang in Beijing. Bye. That's our discussion on work and employment for special program series, What's the Talk? On tomorrow's show, we'll bring you the final installment of What's the Talk? which features young people sharing their views on world peace. You can find us on Apple Podcasts at Roundtable China. If you're an Android user, catch us on the Yunting app. I'm He Yang. We'll see you next time. D-Dine, a podcast of CGT Radio. We go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations. Hear our conversations.